Hi again, wrestling fans. This is Gary Cantrell, host of The Shoot, the talk on professional wrestling. And joining me at this time for a very special interview, he is a former WWF performer and a guy who can do certainly hundreds of voices, Jason Sensation. Jason, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, doing pretty well. Um, I want to start off by asking you basically uh, how you got started as far as doing voices. Um, well, I guess it all begins uh, when I grew up on the farm of, we grew up on a farm, my family, and uh, living on a farm, you don't really get to go out and hang out with the other kids. Right. So you got to come up with things to do, and uh, me and my little brother John used to wrestle in the basement. Uh-huh. We had our own little organization, and I guess... We'd, uh, in between matches, we'd do the post-match interviews, and that's basically where I started doing voices, trying to sound like the wrestlers with my brother, excuse me. That's all right. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it kind of went into a Macho Man impression. The more I did Macho Man, the more people started to say, hey, that sounds just like him when I was a kid. And then my family started to use that Macho Man impression at parties and stuff. Well, let's get Jason, my dad and my mom, let's get Jason to do Macho Man. So, <clears throat> sorry. How about, how about some of that Macho Man? Can you give us a little line? <laughs> Let's see what I got here. Oh, yeah, the Macho Man Randy Savage. I was actually, I saw a little piece on YouTube recently with Macho Man. Uh-huh. And it was a piece from a couple years ago, but yeah, I laughed my ass off. Because <laughs> Macho Man, <laughs> the Macho Man was like, yeah, you're going to come down and you're going to watch our show. And yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I just want to leave a little message for Hulk Hogan that you're a coward. And you're also a pussy and you're also a fucking asshole. <laughs> Where's this guy coming up with this shit? Oh, just man. out of the blue. It was so hilarious. Oh, man. That was a good impression. Thank you, man. If you, have, so if you check on YouTube, this, there's this Macho Man video, and it's hilarious. Macho Man, Put in MachoMan.com on YouTube. Oh, dude, i got to check that out. So going back to what you were saying about the voices, would you say that you started doing primarily just wrestling? Because I know you do some, like, movie stars and things like that. Oh, yeah, because I was so into wrestling. Wrestling was my life. I lived it. I ate it. I slept it. Wrestling. I loved wrestling from the day one. So, yeah, basically started with Macho Man, and just more and more wrestlers picked up, and slowly but surely. And uh, one one day, finally, my sister, my little sister Laura, called in a talk show, a local talk show in Canada. Right. And they were looking for hidden talents, and uh, she told them about me, and they brought me on, and man, it just exploded. People loved the wrestling impressions, and that's where I started to say, wow, maybe this could become something, you know? Right. And really quick, when when did you start watching wrestling? Um, I like I don't even have a first memory of it. It's just a feeling of it always being there. My right. mother tells me, my, my mother tells me that my dad used to come home when I was still an infant and I was his wrestling son. He used to bring, put me on his lap even as an infant when he was watching his hour of wrestling on the weekend. So oh, wow. maybe it even comes from those days, you know? Yeah, exactly. So you, um, so you, you met Owen Hart and, and Davey Boy Smith at what, an autograph signing, right? That's right, in Ottawa. And they were just a riot, and they loved the impressions. I kind of went crazy. It was my first time meeting wrestlers, and right. Owen and Bulldog were a couple of my favorites, just Owen being the comedian he always was on air. Right. Uh, I was a huge fan of his, and I just went off doing, I'm, 
I am, I'm a Slammy Award winner, and Brett, you're not as good as me. And Owen was just in shock, and he's like, you can't do Bulldog. And I was like, come on, British Bulldog, have the bite of my dog food. And he was laughing his head off. And, yeah, it was really like a dream come true just meeting them. And right. Owen liked me so much, he actually brought me in the dressing room. And that's where I started to meet people and started to, you know, get into the business. kind of opened up the door for me. Right. Who Who did you initially meet as far as, you know, management with WWE where talks first started to kind of get underway? Um, it was actually Carl DeMarco, the Canadian president of WWE. So, um, yeah, he was backstage, and I met him, did impressions for him, and he was the guy in charge in the office. I think he still is. And right. here in Canada, in Toronto, and so I just started to send him videos. I was going to broadcasting school, so we got a video demo made, and I kept sending him videos, calling him all the time, showing up when cameras were going to be there, showing up on the home shopping network, working for free, just trying to get in, you know. So this was around what year, like 96, 97, or early? 97, yeah. This was the whole year of 97 I spent doing this. Oh, wow, because you we- made... You made that appearance in what, 98 on Raw, or was that 97 still? That's 98, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, so, get, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, go, go ahead and what, whatever you're saying. I was just going to say that that whole year, I really wanted to break into WWF at the time because I so badly wanted to be a part of that whole Heart Foundation angle. Right. I wanted to somehow get into that because I loved the whole angle. I loved the Heart Foundation. And, right. uh, yeah. But I didn't make it. It was one year too late. Yeah, but well, what time, I mean, so you started meeting with Carl after you sent him tapes. Did he call you and kind of ask you to, to come backstage for a meeting? Or how did it, as far as the actual meeting went? Oh, well, okay, well, no, I, I would send him videos. I wouldn't get any replies. His assistant, he's been through a million of them, but his assistant at the time, um, she would reply to me and she would say, sorry, and we're going to get back to you, and I'm trying to get Carl to get back to you, but... Busy, busy. He kind of left it on the shelf for a while, but I wouldn't let it live it down. I showed up at every camera show. Every time there was a camera, I would show up. So I don't know if you remember Bret Hart winning the world title, and he came back to Canada with the belt after SummerSlam 97. Right. And I I was leading the fans in O Canada. I was doing impressions on Raw. That was my actual first appearance on Raw was that time. And, uh, yeah, I think it started to pick up because people started to notice me. When when did... uh, the first meeting, sorry, that's the question you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I would meet Carl all of these every time I went to these shows, but um, Carl finally called me and said, hey, um, his assistant called me and said, Carl wants you to be at the Home Shopping Network. So I managed to get a ride out to the Home Shopping Network, and then Carl had me selling the merchandise, dressing up like the wrestlers and wearing the merchandise and selling it live on TV. Right. So that was really the first meeting with, well, that was the first time Carl really said, okay, let's give this kid a chance. Right. And uh, now, at what point did you start to talk to guys like Vince McMahon or or whoever else was in charge at that point? When when did it start to really, you know, really take off in terms of, hey, we're going to bring this guy on like Raw, you know, at that point? How did that come about? Okay. Well, that came in 1998. Um, I got a call out of nowhere, and it was Carl DeMarco, and he said, hey, uh, Jason, I'm just going to tell you this might be an opportunity for you. Vince McMahon is coming down to TSN to do an interview about screwing Bret Hart on off the record, and uh, if you're interested, come down to TSN, and I'll see if I can introduce you. And I made it down there, and um, I was there watching the show live, and in between, 
the commercials, Carl introduced me to Vince McMahon sitting there on the set of Off the Record and said he does impersonations. And uh, Vince said, well, nobody can do Shawn Michaels. And I said, <laughs> I can do Shawn Michaels. I'm the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. And Vince started to laugh. <laughs> 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 well, uh, and then uh, Carl said, well, do your Owen Hart. So I did Owen Hart for Vince, and Vince loved Owen. He said, wow, I didn't even know that voice could be impersonated. And then someone asked, do Vince McMahon. And Vince says, can you do a Vince McMahon? And I said, welcome, everyone, to Monday Night Raw. <laughs> and then Vince broke out in laughter again and then quietly said, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> and he, but then afterwards he said, hell, kid, we're going to get you on air. And just as Vince McMahon was leaving and getting into his limo, I ran up to him like a mark and said, sir, my video and my file are on file in WWF and I just want the opportunity, and I just ask you, please, just don't forget me, because it'll come up, and you'll be able to use me, and please keep me in mind. And Vince said, I would find that very difficult to forget you. And he got into the limo. And um, I got a call a couple months later for WrestleMania 8, no, sorry, WrestleMania 14. Right, um, Boston. That's right, the DX public workout where the DX were having a little, it was, it's like the fan access at that time. Right. And and I got a call from Carl. He said, this is the call you've been waiting for, Jason, your whole life. And they flew me down to Boston to uh, take part in just in mocking wrestlers with DX. That day I did Undertaker, um, Bret Hart, um, Owen Hart. I did a few guys in the ring with Triple H. I pretended I was a, a psychic. <laughs> and uh, I was, like, channeling myself to these wrestlers. And then as a wrestler, I would put myself down finally ending as Stone Cold Steve Austin, and then he came into the ring and chased me out of the ring. Mike Tyson was also part of DX at the time, so it was kind of cool. I was in the ring with Mike Tyson. It was pretty wild. I can only imagine. And I'll kind of describe the feeling of, you know, getting that call, knowing that, you know, you're about to be signed by WWE. You know, how does that feel? I mean... Uh, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't even know I was going to be signed, but the feeling, like, oh, here's the day. I was walking home. I had just lost a job. I had no money. And I got shit on by a bird. And I was like, this is just, you know. And I went up to clean the shit in my place, and that's when the phone rang. And, I mean, when I hung up that phone, I ran up and down my hallway screaming, even though there was nobody to tell. It was just the most most ecstatic feeling in the world for a wrestling fan to get this dream come true phone call. And uh, it was almost just like a dream began then, and... The, the day the dream was over was the day I stopped being on air with WWE, but for that time, it was just like living in a dream world, a whole dream come true. Like, just the scenery. When I got to Boston, I was brought into a meeting right away, and the meeting was with Vince McMahon, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Mike Tyson, China, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I'm sitting there with these guys, and I'm just, like, in awe, looking back and forth, like, what the hell am I doing here? I'm just a kid, man. And I remember it was, I, I remember Mike Tyson actually helped me get the job, I think, because we were sitting there, and Vince said, and we've got this impersonator here, and Mike Tyson says, what? What do you mean impersonator? What are you talking about? And when I do wrestling voices, he says, do Stone Cold. That's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. And Mike Tyson grabbed himself by the crotch and ran out of the room crying, laughing so hard. And Vince's eyes opened, and you could see dollar signs in his eyes. And I think Mike Tyson seriously really put me over in that interview. Oh, man.
So what yeah, kind of, huge. what kind of, I mean, like when they signed you on, I mean, how, how, what's your job classification? Are you just like a performer? I mean, you weren't a wrestler, obviously, but. That's, you know, yeah, it was, it was kind of funny. They, it seemed like they had given me a wrestler's contract. Well, see, here's what happened. I had already been on, now, from this point, when they got me on there, they were going to have me come out with Triple H at WrestleMania. So right. I stayed in Boston for the week, and then just before WrestleMania, they decided, no, it's going to take away from the seriousness of the match seriousness of the match so we're going to save it for a raw and it really broke me like oh i really wanted to be a part of wrestlemania but i was still so ecstatic to be a part of anything at the time so i just kept my hopes high and they kept their promise and a couple months later they called me and they had this whole dx uh, parody planned uh, vince russo basically had the idea he was writing at the time right. and um yeah they brought me in and boy, did they ever put me in a perfect spot doing Owen Hart's voice with DX, you know? It put me right over. And, uh, like, I was all over TV for those few weeks. And right. the following week when Owen Hart beat me up, it was just, like, unbelievable the amount of attention I was getting. I was in magazines. I was all over television. But WWE had not gotten me a green card yet. And I'm crossing the border illegally every single time I go to do a show. And I'm right. begging them. I'm begging them. Please, guys, I, got, I can't keep lying over the border. It says Titan Sports on the, on the things here. Anyway, lo and behold, when um, I finally got caught at the border right. and they wouldn't let me cross over to the States, that's when my angle with Owen ended. And that's when they decided to sign me. That's when they decided to send a contract because now they, had, they didn't have access to me, but I was already huge, and it would have been like, so bad if I showed up on Nitro a week later, you know? Oh, yeah. There was a big, big war going on at the time. So they really started to run to get a contract to me. They mailed it. They had Carl DeMarco bring me into the Canadian office. And so now, even though I knew my angle was over, I knew I wasn't going to be on TV anymore, uh, now I'm getting the contract. And if I could go back now, I would go and sign with WCW and get paid a lot more money because I would only uh, work for WWF for those three years, and basically most of the time I would spend was at home waiting for them to call me back or not replying to any of the ideas I did come up with them. So it's too bad. Like, when I, hindsight lets you see, you know, but, too bad, you know, life goes on. I did get that opportunity, you know. Yeah, now, now real quick, two things. Now, you mentioned WCW. Were they actually, you know, calling your phone, like constantly trying to get you, or? No, no, there was no nothing at all. I had not gotten in contact with WCW at all. There was an agent who was working for wrestlers in WWF and in WCW. I think his name was Barry Bloom. Uh-huh. And this agent wanted me. He wanted to become my agent. He was trying to get a hold of me through Triple H. And Triple H played middleman, and I was going to sign with this agent, and then I got a call from Vince Russo. And he said, please don't sign with this guy because he's going to use WCW against WWF to get your contract up. But Vince promises that if you just sign what Vince gives you, he'll keep his word and he'll keep you on contract and he'll make sure you get paid if you, if you trust us. And so I trusted right. Vince Russo, and I trusted Vince McMahon and I signed the contract and I've got to say that he kept his word they didn't basically use me for most of that three years but I got paid for the whole three years they took care of me you know that's actually what I was getting ready to ask so you were basically sitting at home and just kind of collecting a check big time yeah it, it was like 
the dream come true uh, job turned into the dream come true lifestyle. <laughs> right. Wake up and what are we going to do today? But uh, still, now it was more. It was that, that as great as that seems. It was hard on me. I wanted to be back on the show. I wanted to get back on air, and I wanted to show my talents. They'd only seen my own heart impression. I wanted to do so many more. And, like, I was writing for their website. I was calling them every other week. I was writing them idea after idea. I just slowly but surely got ignored. Right. And it was it's really too bad. It was basically a waste of money, their money, and a waste of talent. And I will say for the last six months of my contract, they brought me out to Memphis for their farm team. Right. Um, and uh, they had me working with developmental guys and they basically kept like it was just much too many broken promises but that six months was all promising me the world like they had me they publicly cut off my hair in front of everybody at the dressing room at smackdown once because they thought i looked too much like bret hart right and it, they promised me they're cutting off all of my hair because i'm going to be going out as the heel manager and like so many promises i got le- i got a letter from jim ross saying all your hard work is about to pay off, and all of these broken promises leading to Kevin Kelly calling me and saying, okay, Jason, they're not going to re-sign you, so we're going to send you home, but don't go jump off a bridge because people get hired and fired every day. Take care, man. So oh, that's wow. how it ended. Yeah, it's pretty sad. But Damn. shit happens, man. Life goes on, right? Absolutely. So how long were you in the developmental territory? Six months I was in... Uh, Memphis, Tennessee, I lived there, and like, sorry to say, but a lot of hell went down there in Memphis, like, I I went through a lot of bad times in Memphis, like, just from the get-go, it was really run wrong, they had the wrong guys in charge, and I mean, it was just, it was bad, every bit of money I'd saved up over the three years, I had to waste in that six months, because they just, they just tell you to go down, and that's it, you go find yourself a house, you go do whatever you got to do, and it's like starting all over in this new country, in this whole new world. And they didn't even have anybody there to lead me. You know, it was just pretty sad, pretty dis- disorganized. Well, who was who was lead. who was running the show down there? They had Kevin Kelly was in charge, but never there. Right. And the underlings that were there uh, were Terry Golden. I don't know if you know Dirty White Boy Terry Golden. He was. Oh, man, he's one of the dirtiest guys in the business, like, literally. Like, he was just a dirty guy to work for. And you know he does dirty business, you know. Uh, There was him, and they had, they went through wrestlers like, like it was nothing, like, to train the guys, because nobody would get along with Terry Golden, but he was their office guy who sucked and kissed. (laughs) Brother Brother loves ass to a T, so... He was their boy, so any wrestler who didn't get along with Terry Golden, they got rid of. So while I was there, they had Tracy Smothers training us, they got rid of him. Then they had Bobby Eaton training us, then they got rid of him. So, uh, I don't know, I went through a lot of trainers down there as well. Right, and you were you were down there, I guess, or you were training as a wrestler or a manager? Or what was what were you doing down there? See, that, that they had told me I was supposed to be a, um, a um, wrestling manager. They were going to train me to be a heel manager. But when they brought me down there, Kevin Kelly's the guy in charge, and right. um, they had also there was also a lot of talk of me doing the slam jams where I'm selling the upcoming events. Right. For the, and at the time Kevin Kelly was doing that job. So here's a guy in charge, and here's a kid with all this talent, and 
hmm, what am I going to do, train this kid to take my job or do everything in my power to get rid of this kid? And that's what Kevin Kelly did. For that six months, he buried me. Like, he buried me to the office to the point where when I'd call Jim Ross, Jim Ross wouldn't even want to talk to me. And I had such a good relationship with all these people, it was too bad that my name started to get buried from this one jealous guy, you know? And he would make my life a living hell. And the only thing he really gave me to do was ring announce. He put me in the ring with a microphone and said, ring announce. And he would even fucking jump all over me for that. Who do you think you are, Howard Finkel? You don't announce a match like that. You don't put any enthusiasm into announcing a match. When you're a ring announcer for wrestling, you're nothing. You're a nobody. So you come in and you say the name. Like, he was even afraid of me getting myself over as an announcer. And he was all over me. Like, he was just all over me. And that's all he would let me do is ring announce. He wouldn't let me sit at the table and do commentary with him because, again, he had to protect his position. He wouldn't let me do interviews backstage because he had to protect his position. He didn't want me to show how great I was in doing all the things he already does for WWE. So they had this guy in charge of me, and he made my life a living hell. Kevin Kelly was bullshit, and it's too bad, you know? Now, you said he was burying you to the front office. Now, was he, like, making up stuff and going back to them, or is it just... All of this that you're talking about where he's kind of, you know, just putting you in these low type of positions. No, yeah, because, yeah, I would go through different situations where I'd call for help from the office and they were talking to me like I was this badass piece of shit who, who uh, brought it on all myself. There was an instant with Kevin Fortig, this wrestler who's on ECW now, Kevin Thorne. Right. Where he, where he, he got on at me for a rib. He pulled a rib on me and the Shawn Michaels students who I was living with. He pulled a rib on us, and all we did was return a rib. And rather than fight any, he wasn't even under contract at the time, which was sad, but he was good buddies with Terry Golden and right. Kevin Kelly. Anyhow, um, yeah, so he came into the school one day and picked me up and threw me through one of the school walls and then picked me up and choked me out until I passed out. And I called to complain because now my life's being threatened by this guy who's going right. to pick on like a wrestling manager, and he's huge. And I was told that. I was told by Bruce Pritchard not to bother calling Jim Ross. I'm lucky that I lived, and if it was Steve Blackman or The Undertaker, they might not have stopped choking me. Jeez. Yeah, so like, I, I didn't understand from before, when I was, um, before I was in Memphis, I still had a respect from the office. They all respected me. Sorry, kid, you're in the bank. We just don't have anything for you right now. Right. But we will. We love your talent, and we're going to use you. Turned into, uh, yeah, kid, you and your attitude uh, has got to change. You know, it, it was just, it was just too different. All of a sudden, it was like black and white. And there was an instant where Kevin Kelly and Terry Golden asked me to do some impressions for a friend of theirs, and they'll pay me a hundred bucks. Right. And I, when I went to do it, it was, it was this guy who had this whole business to himself, and I was doing these impressions as if the wrestlers were actually there. So it was giving this guy, um, I was putting over the wrestlers on this guy's show like the wrestlers were actually there, and it wasn't saying that it was an impersonation or anything. So this guy's using all of these wrestling impressions to sell his company, which was down in Memphis. I think it was a car salesman. Uh-huh. And I guess he, was, he used to party with Terry Golden and Kevin Kelly, but I knew this was wrong. I knew I could get in shit from the office if I was selling this, you know? Absolutely. Because... So when I was, I was brought down, I was about to do it, and I was like, hold on a second. Is there anything you're going to say about this being impression? It's like, fuck it, man. Who cares? And I said, all right, you know what? Um, I'm not going to be able to do it then. 
And believe me, they buried me for that. Kevin Kelly made it that he had a big deal for me and set it up real nice, and I fucked the deal over, and I made WWF look bad. And that's the way he sold it to the office, to where even when Triple H came down, he was like, oh, look, it's Mr. Egomaniac, Mr. Big Head, who doesn't like to do things. And it was like, what's happening here? Why, are, why am I getting a bad name from all these guys I used to be friends with? It was right. just Kevin fucking Kelly was in charge, and he was burying me at every fucking chance he got. Jeez. Yeah, it's just too bad, man. It's just too bad because as a wrestling fan, I would much more rather see Jason Sensation using different wrestling impersonations to sell a WWF upcoming event than Burger Belly 300-pound Kevin Kelly standing there with a slob belly hanging over his pants to be there next week. You know, I'm sorry. As a wrestling fan, I'd much rather be more entertained with impersonations. Uh, absolutely. I, I could understand that. Yeah, but... It all comes down to who kisses ass best. And and yeah and and, and now now when it actually came to the re- how did the actual release come about? It was out of nowhere. Uh, two weeks before the release, I was. Well, listen to this. Four weeks before the release, uh-huh. I had my head. I, I we were at an indie show and I was managing Spanky Brian Kendrick in a match. And outside the ring, we were doing some funny joke, and I ended up smashing my head on a beam and it split my head wide open right. and I was pouring blood and I went backstage and I'm like I gotta go get sewn up and Terry Golden said you're not fucking going to get sewn up you can put fucking crazy glue on it and I said, buddy I gotta go to the hospital now WWF had not gotten insurance right. as a Canadian in the states so he was protecting his ass because of how much money it would have costed me to get sewn up so I wasn't even allowed to go get my head sewn up anyhow so um, I, would, I, just, I just remembered that, so I had to say that. So, yeah, I had to let this, this scar heal on my head with polysporin, and uh, I'm the one who got in shit the next morning when I was still bleeding. Anyhow, long story short, uh, two weeks before I was released, I got a letter from Jim Ross. I still have the letter. It's actually a card. Uh-huh. And it says, Jason, you've had such a long, hard road, but it's finally about to pay off for you. And that same day that I was, the card was delivered to me, by, by Kevin Kelly, he said, you know, we're going to bring you up as a heel manager now. So keep it on the down low, but you'll be coming up to TVs pretty soon as a heel manager. Two weeks later, and this is three days after the acquisition of WCW, Kevin Kelly called me and said, uh, yeah, like I said before, they chose not to resign you, so uh, don't go jump off a bridge. And that was it. And that was it. I think Nothing from Jim Ross, nothing from all the people I was in touch with before. They wouldn't answer my calls. So I called, tried to find out why, what I did wrong. Nothing. I wouldn't even get a reply. And to this day, I'm still emailing Jim Ross for a reply. I'm getting messages from his assistant saying, we're sorry that Jim hasn't got back to you, but he's going to. But still, he, I still don't know to this day why they released me. Uh, except, of course, for the obvious reason that they release everybody else. You know, creative doesn't have anything for you right now. Creative didn't have anything for me for three years, but I sure had a lot of stuff for me, and I could have got them to utilize the money they spent on me a lot more. But, oh, well, that's the way life goes, brother. You yeah. can't live in the past, though, you know? I, I pick I, up and move on. I hear you. Now, now, now Jim Ross or, or even a Vince McMahon, they never, I guess, found out, or at least to your knowledge, what was going down down in Memphis? or uh, No, like... And I, yeah, I'll tell you the truth, actually, after I was released, Memphis was closed down. 
they let go pretty much most of the wrestlers. They held on to a few of them. They fired almost all the wrestlers. They fired all of the Terry Golden and everyone in charge was fired as well. So I think they knew bullshit was going down there. But it's just too bad that the people that got caught up in it, like myself, ended up getting the shit end of the stick before that happened. Right, right. Well, I, I guess old uh, old Kevin Thorne, he still has a job for whatever reason. But uh... Yeah, he didn't even have a job then. He got his job after. That guy, even he even sexually assaulted me one night in a hotel. He ripped my clothes off, ripped my underwear off. And I was like, what's this guy fucking doing to me? Like, what? how can they let them get away with this, you know? But shit happens, brother. That's the way it was down there. Well, that's right. You, yeah. have, you have a book that you're writing right now. That's right. It's called Raped in Wrestling by Jason Sensation. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tell-all book. It's basically a tell-all book from day one to the, to the last day of working for WWE, the inside stuff. Like, a lot of shit went down, and I saw a whole lot of shit that was going on that I always kept to myself because one day I hope to go back to WWF. That was my dream, you know? Right. And for many years still following WWF, I still had that dream inside me to go back and show these fans my impersonation. But uh, last year when my mom passed away, it was like the reality check. And my mom had a lot of sad, hard few years. Her last few years were sad, hard, and she was very sick. And she really could have used financial help that I wasn't able to provide for her. But if I had that WWF contract and I was still working for WWF, I could have given her that life. I could have given her happy days, in my opinion, before her last sleep. And it's just so sad to me that she worked her whole life to get me to where I was supposed to go. And it it didn't pan out. My whole life, all my mom and my dad did was help me. They helped me to get to where I needed to go. They they let me live my dream of wrestling. They bought me all the merchandise I ever wanted. They, they drove me to shows. They had me on shows. Like, they did everything they could. And it was just so sad that I couldn't pay her back. And when she died, I realized, oh, it's over and it's ruined. And I'll never be able to give my mom those last good few days. And because of that, that's when I said, you know what? I never want to go back. You know what? I want to tell the world the bullshit that I went through. Instead, right. instead, I want to tell everybody what happened back there because, especially now with the media wanting a piece of what's going on backstage. Oh man, you'd be surprised at how sick it was. It's some of the like the good is good, but the bad is the baddest you'd ever seen. Right now, without 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 spoiling too much of the book or or even any of it, could you give us maybe just maybe one or two instances of something that's really bad from backstage, just to kind of give us a perspective of, of you know what really goes on back there. Hmm. Uh, in Boston, that first week I was a part of wrestling, right. uh, there was an agent, there was an agent, his name will be in the book, but this agent, basically, he was buying me dinner, he was treating me like I was this great kid, and he was going to help me out and do so much to help me in this business, and um, him and a rest one night after dinner invited me to go smoke a joint up in his room, so I was like, yeah, man, party, I'll go smoke a joint with you guys. Right. And during that, finishing the joint off in his room, he started to grab me and pull me over to him and sexually try to molest me. And the wrestler stood there as if it was almost like I had the feeling almost like he was there on guard. It was the most sickest, scariest fucking feeling of my life. And I was just fidgeting and jumping and trying to get the fuck away from the guy. And he's like, buddy, if you don't do this, you're never going to get into this business. 
if you don't fuck somebody, you're not going to get into this business. And another wrestler knocked on the door, and it was my out. And I was able to get out at that time, and I thank God that that wrestler came to the door because if he didn't, I don't know what would have happened. Right. But, um, or let's say I do know what would have happened. But look, thank God that wrestler came to the door. But, uh, you know, it's like, like, what the fuck's going on there? And, uh, yeah, I went and actually made a complaint about that, and that just worked against me with this agent and the wrestlers, the way they would treat me following that in the dressing room and just get away with it, you know? Right. But that's just, that's just a small piece of the shit I went through when I was down there. But I'm going to have all names and everything in the book. Like, WWE's legal team is going to be all over me when this book comes up. I'll be looking forward to that myself. You know, and and you telling us that story, you know, if you remember back in the early 90s, there was a lot of accusations going around the time when the whole steroids trial really blew up, and there was a lot of accusations about a certain, you know, guys who were trying to, you know, offer sex to ring boys and things like that, and saying, mm-hmm. you know, you won't have a job unless you do this, and it, it all right. it all kind of clicks now. Exactly, and and I had remembered hearing things of that nature and not wanting to believe them, and boy, was I ever given a huge dose of reality very shortly in the WWF. Would it surprise you that, uh, if, if you found out that things like that were still going on? or? Uh, no, no, it wouldn't, because like, even when I was leaving, it, it, it was still going on. Like, no, it wouldn't. I think more now than ever, they better start cleaning up because now people are at the media and Congress and everybody wants to know what's going on backstage. So I think it's really clean-up time. I'm happy to hear the wellness program that came out right. because, yeah, before the wellness program came out, and here's another story I'll tell you, and this is pretty sad. This is a pretty sad one, okay? I'm just going to share this because because of how much WWF, WWE, and Mitch McMahon are defending their company and their wellness program right. on uh, how much against steroids they are and how much they don't want their wrestlers to be using steroids. Here's a story about a man by the name of Russ Haas. Okay, he's Charlie Haas's brother, and the Haas brothers—they were down in Memphis. And let me tell you, best team I've ever seen since the British Bulldogs. These guys were unbelievable. Collegiate wrestlers from Seton Hall. I mean, these guys had it all. And they were so good together in the ring. And it was just unbelievable to watch them work. And I remember just, and this guy, Russ, he was the nicest guy you'd ever known in your life. He was the funniest man I've ever known. And he was one of the greatest guys I've ever known. And he was married to his high, high school sweetheart, Deidre. And him and his brother were living the dream, man, down in Memphis, on their way to WWF TV. They were going to be huge stars, living the dream. And... I remember that Charlie Haas was a lot bigger than Russ Haas. And I remember every, every single time they came back from a dark match from TVs, right. Russ Haas was so depressed because, quote, Jim Ross and, quote, Bruce Pritchard, these are two of the names I would hear mostly, kept telling Russ Haas, you guys are ready to go, you guys will be on TV, but Russ, you got to get bigger. Russ, you got to get bigger. Sorry, Russ, you got to get bigger. You want to know how Russ died? Because he finally started using steroids, and he shot himself up, and there was air in the needle, and it hit his heart. Yes, he had a weak heart, but that's not what killed him. What killed him was air in the needle. That's what killed Russ Haas, and Russ Haas is dead now. And this man gave his life and died in wrestling because he had to get bigger. 
And, like, I mean, this guy was in tip-top best shape of his life, but he had to get bigger. And there's only one way to get bigger than that. And, um, and this guy is dead, and Russ Haas is dead now. And Charlie Haas lives on and wrestles, and they've never once done a dedication to this guy. And I don't understand why they have Charlie Haas still in their company, and they've not once told the story of his brother, Russ Haas, or shown some of the footage of their dark matches and how great they were. They just wanted it swept under the rug, in my opinion. Okay? This guy's story, this guy's life, it's forgotten. What he gave, what he lived for, and what he died for, it's forgotten. And it's all swept under the rug. And I will quote Terry Golden as well on a meeting after we all got drug tested once when we were in Memphis. Right. Terry Golden said, I'm going to say this to everybody right now. Uh, you don't have to worry about steroids. In fact, um, it might look, it's, uh, it, he used something towards the effect of a positive thing. It, it would be looked at more in a positive light if you were on steroids, but keep your noses clean and anything, any dirty drug you're going to get fired for. So basically, I'm telling you, the guys were told to get bigger. The guys were told it was okay to get steroids. All the guys who were on steroids, who got tested, kept their jobs. So, you know, to see what's going on now, it's just I saw it coming many years ago, and it's too bad Russ Haas is dead and so many others have died because they had to get bigger. Well, it just, it just seems like it's WWE, you know, business as usual to kind of sweep things under the rug, and it seems like they're in so much shit now. You know, and this this started, you know, years ago, I would imagine, you know, with all this kind of steroid abuse and, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you how far back I'm sure that it's been going, but... Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, do you still follow the product today, WWE? That's the thing. I, st- I, I It's almost like I can't... I, it's it's weird. I still can't get out of it. There's something that keeps me watching, keeps me... The, the, the wrestling fan in me still wants wrestling to be good again. And I mean, for the last few years, any time I've tuned in, it's to, be, to, it's to hope that it gets better. But, you know, as a wrestling fan, the product they put on TV, it really sucks now. Wrestling just sucks now. And it's, it's really too bad. But, yes, I continue to watch in hopes that one day that wrestling fan will be happy again. Who, who are some of your favorites of today's stars? See, that's the thing. A lot of the new stars that have come out, I'm really not a fan of. Like, right. I just, I, they, I haven't even, I don't know, there's something about a lot of the wrestlers that, 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 I don't know, they just don't appeal to me like the other characters do. I still watch for Ric Flair. I still watch for Shawn Michaels. Right. Uh, I was uh, sadly going to say, you know, Chris Benoit, the, the great wrestlers, and so sad about Chris Benoit and his family. But, you know, I, I watch for the for the good old days. I still watch for the guys that are still hanging on, but... No offense, but the new era, I'm just, John Cena, you can't sell him to me. It's every time he's even trying to make fun of someone, I just, oh, I want to hide because it looks so cheesy and pathetic. Batista, you can't sell him to me. I, like any of these stars that have come out. What about I'm Bobby just, Lashley? Oh, Bobby Lashley. <laughs> like, come on, there's zero charisma there. Like, I could cut promo. Uh, me, Little Jason Sensation, could cut promos better than all of these guys. Except Kennedy. I'm, I'm liking this guy Kennedy who's coming out now. He might have a future. I'm liking his attitude and his charisma and his, you know, whole ring aura. Well, supposedly he's going to be uh, Vince McMahon's illegitimate son in that storyline. What do you think about that? Oh, the, the storyline. I think what 
I think, you know, I, I don't know. When I saw that storyline, I thought, why not? You know, why not try something, anything other than what they're doing? At least it's new and it's fresh, and it's making for some entertaining television when different guys come up and say, hot oh, daddy to Vince. Like, that's entertaining to me. I like the Boogeyman segment, the Ric Flair segment. So, you know, that that's pretty entertaining. Anything that's new and that's out of the ordinary, I'm applauding because I'm just so sick of the same old, same old. Well, what was your opinion of the Vince McMahon uh, was dead, you know, blowing up storyline? What was your opinion of that? Okay, when that angle first started, I thought, brilliant. This is brilliant. This is a great angle. Right. And, and when I, I didn't see it, I saw on the Internet that they had the 10-bell salute and everyone come out. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, now that just just made everybody who's passed away and they paid tribute to, that just flushed it down the toilet, you know? Yeah. And so it was it was kind of a it was a catch twenty two. I thought that I thought where they were going was was an angle that would get so much attention and they'd never done it before. So my initial thought was this is a good idea. But then to see where it was going, it was like, Okay, maybe this isn't such a great idea. Like it's almost like you're spitting on everyone else you've you've paid respect to after they've passed. And um uh, I don't know, just to hear that everybody showed up with black suits on and they had a hearse and a coffin ready and they're all ready to go on and then they got the call about Chris Benoit. Right. It just goes to show you, like, I guess you can't play with that kind of stuff because, you know, it's, yeah. it's just, just too too weird that everybody's all ready for a funeral and becomes the biggest funeral wrestling's ever had. Kind of puts it in perspective, you know. It's just like, well, you know, you want to go – this far and put out the storyline and here goes one of your own down for real, you know, it's just, yeah, I, I, I know I was shocked. What, what was your initial reaction when you got the news? Uh, Chris Benoit? Yeah. I'm still in shock to tell you the truth that like, I, I hate it. I hate it that it's inside me still that I still don't feel like I have the answers. And I, I know that the cops have done their jobs and I'm not a police officer or, or an investigator or, forensic scientist, but there's just something inside me that still doesn't understand it, and it doesn't make sense to me, and there's so many questions I still have about it, and I still can't get rid of that. It's still a question inside me. Like, some nights I go to sleep thinking about it still, and I'm just not understanding it. Like, too many unanswered questions for me, right. like, where are the diaries? What were the diaries destroyed? If uh, Why would he have to bind his wife's hands and feet? I don't understand that part. I don't see any way the man could kill his son. I don't see any way the man could kill his wife or himself. But the thing that gets me the most about it, and I really don't understand why this hasn't even been looked into, and if it has, then forgive me, but when I saw the results for the toxology reports, right. and I think there was a drug called Xanax, yeah. I think it was Xanax, that was, they had said that this drug was in uh, Daniel Benoit, and which proves that he would have, probably been passed out at the time of his death right or he, he would have been under so what why did nobody say anything about xanax also being found in nancy benoit and also being found in chris benoit or something to the effect of maybe there wasn't enough for them to be passed out well why would they have the same kind of drug in them that was used to make daniel pass out 
Um, it just it leads me to wonder again if the three of them were given drugs to pass out and this whole thing was a setup. Like I can't stop thinking like that. And maybe it's my love for Chris Benoit, and maybe it's the memory of the man he was. But I just I haven't come to terms with it. I still haven't. Right. It's it was definitely an unbelievable thing when it when it occurred. So I mean, you know. I think we're all yeah. kind of still in shock with it. I, I don't think the wrestling has fully been able to recuperate from it. And, you know, now with Congress and the media and everybody getting involved, it's just kind of like one downward spiral, I think. you think that kind of sums it up? or? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's, it's scary. And it's, I don't know, it's almost like the worst tragedy you can ever imagine that happened in wrestling is now the thing that's going to possibly fix everything that was wrong in wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what? Um, let me let me get your thoughts on TNA. Do you follow their product at all? Yes, I do. What What, what do you think about about them as far as you know the direction they're taking right now? Um, I see what they're trying to do. They're really doing their best to just start their fan base. Get they're trying to get out there and build. Sorry, build their fan base. So I think they're doing everything in their power to um, really get their fan base going and. To tell you the truth, I, I like I like their shows. I really just think they need more time. Right. I really think that they need a lot more time, and I honestly think Vince Russo has to be put in charge of writing. He has to be the sole guy in charge of writing. And I know <laughs> that's something that everyone's going to say, "Oh no!" That, to, that's up for debate. <laughs> definitely, and I know I know I'm going to take heat for that from other people, but this is my honest opinion. And I was backstage in WWF during the Attitude Era, and I saw Vince Russo writing each and everything that was going on out there. And it was selling. And it was huge. And I know Vince Russo has that ability to do it again. I know he has it, but like, I just don't think he's been in, put in charge. But the ideas he's come up with, I do like a lot of them. And by, by, by all means, there are some ideas I've seen on TNA that make me roll my eyes as well. And I don't know who's writing what, you know, so it makes me wonder. But I honestly believe if Vince Russo was given that forum to be in charge again and given that opportunity, I really think that he could build it again the way he did with the Attitude Era because he's the one who brought it from what it was in 96 to what it became in 98. Right. And if he, if he, had, if he had total control and a couple of years, I'm telling you, and I know he, he can't have time. You've got to build it as we go, but... Well, I, don't know. I guess there's a couple things, and maybe you can kind of react to them. I guess that I see with it is, well, for one, it doesn't seem like they're pushing their X division, where I think there could be some money to be made. Um, you know, they go off and sign Pac-Man Jones, and the guy has no charisma. Uh, the third thing is that they have a lot of man-on-woman violence, which I think is just really bad, especially with the Kurt, Ang- the, the Kurt Angle and, and his wife, um, you know, Karen Angle, and... Um, uh-huh. Then you have, um, you know, then you have them signing guys like you know Andrew Test Martin and, and Matt Morgan. These guys who are you know clearly roided up, and it just seems like they have this chance to you know really turn things around. And it seems like they're going the wrong way with it with these couple of moves. If I can just get your your reaction on, on these type of directions that they're making. Um. Okay, I see what you're saying, and uh, like you do have definite points in my opinion, like. Like, I see where you're coming from with them signing tests and why they're not using their X division, but the TNA has been around for five years. Right. And 
and uh, like it has not taken off the way they wished they could have. So I think they're trying to do whatever they can to change things or trying to surprise the fans or trying whatever they can, trying something new to right. see what can start to bring those fans in because they've always sort of had the same fan base with what they were doing, and I think that's why they're trying to change things around. Right. And I think that's why they're hiring guys that they think the fans know because more fans know Test than, than um, I don't know. What, what, what about signing Pac-Man Jones, you know, a guy with 11 run-ins with the law and, and six actual arrests? I mean, don't you think that's kind of a bad move? Yeah, I thought, honestly, I thought that was a very bad, I still think it is, only because I don't even know who Pac-Man Jones is, yeah. and I know there's a lot of wrestling fans who don't even know who he is. And, uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it's for the amount of money that I think they're paying him, yes, I think that was a big mistake because it's not getting over. But, again, it's like they're reaching to make that bang, to, to make that public bang to get people in. So I see where they're coming from, but... You know, any one of us spectators can sit and say, okay, yeah, that was a bad idea, but it's not as easy when you're trying to make that decision. So I see what they're trying to do, you know. I see they're trying to, they're trying to expand. They're trying to make, make news and make controversy and get people interested and get, get noticed, and I see where they're going with it, you know. But, you know, there's going to be bad, bad decisions and there's going to be good decisions, you know. Well, I think, I think you and, and me and a lot of people agree that they've come a long way just in five years. I mean, what they've done – Within a five-year period, is probably more than a lot of promotions have done. I think you. I think we, I think we can all agree on that. So. Mm-hmm. I agree. But um, not big time, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I think that if they if they can step it up, you know, and they could be good competition for WWE eventually, you know, and and maybe you know things will get interesting again, and we can all be you know happy wrestling fans, and you know I won't have this <laughs> show to bitch on every single week. Because it seems like every week I'm always bitching about something, so I don't know. But um, so yeah, as as for Kurt and his wife, I really, I honestly watching them on TV. For me, it's good television to watch him and his wife. Even his wife on there, it's just, I don't know, like it's the entertainment part for me. There's something I like about it. Yeah, I, I think it definitely has Russo written all over it. <laughs> you say that in such a bad way No, no, I, I didn't mean that in a bad way I just meant that it's very obvious That that's Vince Russo's touch on it I, be, I really believe that hmm. but Well, the, see, yeah, that's the thing, too That I don't know Like, Because there's a few writers there I'm not sure who's making what decisions and Some guys are making decisions that People are saying, oh, that's Russo Like the, like the, the coffin that raises up to the heavens match Right And, uh, and uh I heard that Vince Russo wasn't in charge of that angle and didn't write it, have anything to do with writing that angle. So, it's, like, we're not backstage, so we really don't know, you know? Well, now, well, now what about TNA? I mean, have they, ever, have they ever tried to contact you, or have you ever tried to contact them? Um, just through Vince Russo. I, I, I was very close with Vince Russo. I know Vince Russo well. He's, he's been like a brother to me in times, like, when my mother died. And just before that, even, he had his Ring of Glory show, and... He was a born-again Christian. He became a born-again Christian and a changed man from the man I knew him in WWF. And I went down and worked that show with him. So I've kind of built a friendship and a love and a relationship with a good man. Like, we know each other. We know a lot about each other. And uh, we're good friends who aren't in touch all the time, but it doesn't even matter. Like, we're good buddies, and that's cool, you know? Right. So I I was in touch with him, um, I guess, end of last year. Right. Um, and 
you know, he, he definitely thinks there's a place for me in TNA. And it's just that I'm, I live in Canada right now, and they're on a freeze for hiring guys, to tell you the truth. Right. Like, they, they, they can't just go hiring guys. They're spending so much money on the guys they're bringing in to try to do things with. So it's kind of, it would cost a lot of money to get me a, not only a green card for the States, right. but to move me down to the States because they couldn't be flying me in from Canada all the time. Right. And then, of course, the, to paint me. So, like, it, w- it would cost a lot to bring someone in who's just an impersonator or who just does voices and can't really offer, like, to be a wrestler or things of that nature. So I can see where it, w- it would be hard for the company to spend that much money on me when they haven't taken off where they want to be yet. Right. But years down the line, who knows? Personally, for me, I'm done with wrestling. Like, I don't even want to work independent shows anymore. Like, I've just left the business now. Right. Like, I've given my, I gave my notice to every independent show I was working for, even websites I was working for. I just, I'm done with it. I do not want to be a part of the wrestling business again. Right. But, uh, but um, to tell you the truth, though, if Vince Russo called me and he wanted me to be a part of what he was doing, I would work with Vince Russo again because I just think he's a brilliant writer and uh, I'd love the opportunity to work with him again. And, of course, to be on mainstream television again would be so cool. And it would get that dream to come true that uh, was killed many years ago. But, uh, yeah, other than that, I don't think I'll ever even do another wrestling show in my life if unless that happens. <laughs> well, now, for the fans that are listening who have been fans of yours all these years, kind of catch us up on what you've been up to outside of the wrestling business. Well, the last few years I've been working at this television station here in the here in Toronto, Canada. It's actually, it's, it's a funny story how I got the job. It was after WWF. I'd been down in the dumps, gone through one of the worst dark periods of my life, not knowing what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to go, just wanting to quit and basically wanting to give it all up and hang it all in. And it's hard, but I can see where a lot of the wrestlers who end up killing themselves when their careers are over and their lives are done, I was in that place, and I know, I know what it feels like and I know where they are and what it is is you're, you've given your life to something you've worked your whole life for something and then you become part of this family and when the family tells you they don't want you anymore it's like how do you go back you don't know what to do with yourself you don't know where to go you don't know how to be and every time you turn on the TV there's that family that you used to be a part of and they're living without you and it's it's just it's it's really it's really tough when there's only one company you know to make it in this business when that company turns you away it's like you just got nowhere else to go if your life was living for wrestling and if you dedicated your life physically mentally emotionally to this business to this sport and this sport says goodbye it's almost like your life's over now you know it's 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 sad and it's scary and i know people are a lot worth a lot more than the wrestling business but I was in that state of mind, and I know where they're coming from, and it's the hardest, saddest place to be. Anyhow, just getting that aside, I was in that place, and I was still doing these indie shows, and I was playing a heel manager, and I would really take my frustrations out on the fans and scream at the top of my lungs and hate the fans with all my energy. Right. And uh, there, there was this young girl, maybe seven years old, who had a little cast on her arm, and she was yelling for me to be quiet, and I went right up to her face, and I said, Shut up, or I'll break your other arm. And this girl broke out in tears. Oh, man. And I mean, 
like I just melted inside like oh what did I do like it just reality struck and I was the biggest asshole in the world and I mean I went backstage and I couldn't live with myself so as soon as the show was over I ran out to the little girl and I gave her an autographed picture and I said I explained Scooby-Doo I said you know Scooby-Doo you know when the bad guy takes off his mask at the end and it's really just a person that's me I was just acting like that monster but I'm really just a person and that was just a show and she was so happy, and I gave her a hug. And when I stood up, her dad said to me, you know, that was the nicest thing I've ever seen an entertainer or a performer come out and do, to take time away to explain to a 7-year-old not only what wrestling's all about, but to make her feel so much better when she was so sad. You really have definitely impressed me here. And uh, I'm in charge of the security team at the television station in Toronto. And I'd love for a people person like you to be a part of my team because I think it'd be perfect for the uh, atmosphere of a television station to have you as a security guard. And you never know who you're talking to in this life. So my friend Steve Somerville hired me at that point, brought me to Toronto, and that's what I've been doing ever since, working for security for this uh, television station that was once City TV, and now it's been bought by CTV. So we're now CTV, and uh, it's a great place to work. I, I, I got every, I, I'm surrounded by entertainment. I do voiceovers. I uh, announce the wrestlers when they come to visit the building. I um, fulfill the questions for the guys when the wrestlers come. Um, I do commercials. I do a lot of voiceover work. I do a lot of uh, animation voiceover stuff. And it's, it's a lot of fun working in this, in this company, in this building. And basically, I'm a security guard, and so I get to a, a little piece of each and every department. So that's what I've been doing the last few years. And uh, currently... I'm working with a few comedians here, local comedians here in Canada, in Toronto, Canada. And uh, these guys, they're under the name Television. If you check out MySpace videos or YouTube videos and type in the word Television, that's Television with a K, K-E-L-E-V-I-S-I-O-N. Anyhow, these guys really have put together a great thing where they've got a whole bunch of comedians from Canada uh, locally all have come together and trying to trying to get out there and uh, currently we're working on a huge idea and I mean this is something that's been in the works for a bit but I think the guy my friend Matt Kelly the founder of television right. has put together one of the greatest ideas I, I've ever been a part of and I'm so happy and so proud to be a part of this idea and I really think it's going to take off now I don't think it's going to get us money but I definitely think it's going to get us noticed and I think it's going to get us a lot of attention and it's going to make a lot of noise Right. So as soon as as soon as this thing is done, it's going to be all over YouTube and it's going to be all over the internet, and that's where we're going to sell it to that audience. But uh, as soon as this project is finished, I'm telling you, it's going to be huge, and I'm so happy to be a part of it, and I can't wait until it's come to a, a halt and we get to um, show it to the world because it's a great it's a great idea, and I'm so happy to be a part of it, and it's a perfect place for what I do. Well, let me know, and I'll definitely plug it on the show for you. Definitely. When this, when this, when this thing comes, and it's soon, it, like we're in the works of getting it started. So as soon as we're able to let the cat out of the bag, I'll be in touch with you. I'll be on YouTube. I'll be on MySpace. I'm definitely going to be throwing it out there. Sounds good to me. Now, now, real quick before we go here, uh, just for all, of, just for all your diehard fans, maybe we can get a couple of rapid-fire impersonations. All right, hit me, man. Let's let's do it. All right, give me give me the immortal Hulk Hogan. 
Let me tell you something, brother. I've been training, man. I've been saying my prayers, Mr. Man. And let me tell you something, dude. I want to ask you a question, Vince. What you going to do, brother, when the oldest man in the world in a 22-millimeter wrinkles run wild on you, brother? <laughs> How about the Ultimate Warrior? I am the Ultimate Warrior, and I have the power of self-destruction, destruction, and destiny of all my warriors who love to go and fly planes in the sky. And when you fall out of the plane and the wind catches your helicopter, you will feel the power of the bushes and the trees when you fall to the pit of the warrior. <laughs> How about the Undertaker? You want the badass American Undertaker or the no, uh, we, dead man? We, we want the real Undertaker, the dead man. I'm the dead man, the Undertaker from the dark side. And me and my dad, Paul Bear, are hungry. Oh, yes, Undertaker. We're hungry for food. I love food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And we're also hungry for action. When my arm heals, I'm going to come back and bury my opponents, and they will rest in peace. How about the Nature Boy Ric Flair? Woo, the Nature Boy Ric Flair was not on WrestleMania. Woo, but I'm going to be on the next WrestleMania because the Nature Boy Ric Flair is retiring. You're fired. I'm retired. Woo! Two more. The Iron Sheik. I just want to say one thing. I just want to let you know. Be Brian Blair. The Iron Sheik. Sheik, you're like Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan. And I want to give you camouflage. Then I break your back. Fuck your ass. And then you'll be humble. Fuck. And this one's for me. Give me Owen Hart. The fact of the matter is, Jason Sensation was the real nugget, and I'm so happy that somebody finally flushed that nugget down the toilet. You'll never be as good as me, Jason. The real best there is, best there was, and the best there ever will be. Don't you forget it, Brother Brett. Woo! Jason, I, I want to thank you for taking a good hour out with us to join us here on the shoot. And uh, is there any final thing you want to say to your fans? I just want to say uh, for anyone who's ever been a fan of mine that I'm so grateful and thankful that you're a fan of mine because all I ever was was a wrestling fan. And so to know that there's people out there, I see them on YouTube and I see them on MySpace, who respect me as a talent and are fans of mine, it's just uh, so flattering to know that there's people out there that even still remember me. And I'm so grateful for, your people, for you people, and I want to let you know that I'm working on stuff that you're really going to love. So all you fans, stay tuned because Jason's sensation is not done yet.